This week on Thinking Biblically, we'll be talking about children. Whose responsibility are they? Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before we get into the topic at hand, I want to remind everyone, if you haven't done so already, to please subscribe, also to like, share, and review. Well, recently, here in Ottawa, Canada's capital, as well as many cities across the country, there was what was called the Million March for Children. Many parents across the country have been very concerned about what's being taught to their children in the public schools. It gets a little more complicated here in Ontario, where we actually have public-funded religious-based education, and that's a whole other topic. So we have what's the public school board, we have the Catholic school board, which is funded with tax dollars, and the Catholic schools do at least claim to stand for Catholic values, but like the public schools, they are uh, they have embraced uh, gender ideology and and pride ideology and this sort of thing. And parents are concerned that it's not the school's responsibility to teach sexuality to their children, but this should be a uh, parent's responsibility. There's a couple of provinces, at least, uh, provinces of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, I don't understand all the fine detail to this, where the premiers, that's like what we call governors in the United States, we have premiers here in Canada, uh, these, pre- these premiers in these two provinces are taking a stand for parental rights. Uh, for example, the children cannot uh, change their pronouns without their parents at least knowing about it, if not having their permission. And many people are against that sort of thing. Uh, But these parents would be those that um, are for what we might call parental rights or or parental responsibility in education. And so there's been this growing concern. There have been some local protests by school boards, and that has culminated in this cross-Canada Million March for Children. I don't know when this was first planned, the, the counter-protests, that is, but it seemed close to the time of when this was going to happen. There also emerged these counter-protests for people who are standing against what these particular parents want. And what's the, the thing, I guess, that was most troubling to me is how what the parents of the Million March for Children were standing for was being misrepresented by the counter-protesters. The Million March for Children was for parental rights and education, while the counter-protesters were criticizing these parents for being against things like homosexuality and transgenderism. Now, it's possible that Many of these parents, or some of these parents, or all these parents, are critical of these practices in and of themselves. But that's not what they were standing for. They were they have they're holding a long time belief that these kinds of subjects should be taught by parents and not by teachers in schools. Now, I could understand a little bit where the counter protesters are coming from, even though the Million March for Children was about 
parental rights and education in particular. Um, and they were one of the slogans was leave our children alone, leave our kids alone with regard to these, with teaching this kind of ideology. If the you know, parents don't normally complain about teachers teaching things that the parents like, right? So if the parents were okay with homosexuality, gender ideology, this sort of thing, they wouldn't be so worked up uh, and taking taking a stand like this. But still, to be fair, it, and and there were people. Um, uh, there was um, there was a group, at least one group. I need to be careful because how much do I know about these things? I know some. I don't know everything. There was a group called uh, Gays Against Grooming, and there are many people who are for homosexual lifestyle, uh, transgenderism, who don't believe that children should be influenced along these lines. That, uh, again, whether they're taught by parents or at least these things would be introduced to them closer to or upon adulthood, some people see it that way. So they're, they might be for the ideology but don't think children should be influenced along those lines. That's a topic all to itself, um, which we might come back to, but I, I, I want to focus on the issue of parental responsibility in education. Now, that gets talked about along with the idea of parental rights. So many of us would, would agree that parents have a responsibility to care for and teach their children, train their children, this sort of thing. But when it comes to parental rights, how far does that right go? Many of us, many of us would agree that there would be a, there would be or should be a limit to parental rights in a just society so that if parents are truly abusing their children, that the state hasn't we call an interest in that and should get involved that if you're concerned that your next door neighbor is hurting their child, the idea that you can call the authorities in and they will come and check it out, uh, and hopefully they would do that well and not just um, not just kind of go in there um, assuming that the, the hotline call, for example, is correct. I hope there's a good way. It's an, And I've heard conflicting things through the years of, in certain jurisdictions where that has not been handled well and other jurisdictions where that's been handled very sensitively. And I've heard that about here in Ontario. Uh, and if you have any information about that you want to share in the comments, you could do that or you could write me. Um, but that's all to say, you know, apart from how the state might abuse that kind of responsibility, many of us would agree that the state does have some responsibility when there's true harm coming to a child. Now, if that's true, and the society believes certain values that are different from what some parents believe in. So many parents believe today that their children would be better off marrying somebody from their own cultural, religious, perhaps racial group. Other people find that kind of idea completely distasteful, uh, almost sinful, that humans are humans and young people 
and nowadays people are getting married when they're not young people, they're, they're older, people should simply be free to marry whoever they want to, this sort of idea. Um, I, but I could imagine that some parents would want to know with their high school kids or even younger today, they, they're getting interested in, 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 other, in others, and they, start, they want to date and this sort of thing. The parents might want to influence the children one way. The school is more liberal uh, uh, with regard to who people uh, could should have relationships with. There's, um, and parents might want to know what's going on at school. And, the, and teachers and administrators might want to go out of their way to, quote-unquote, protect their children, those their students, from parental reaction or what they may see as overreaction or misinformed reaction and this sort of thing. Um, and the fact is, for generations, public schools have been teaching values that perhaps the parents wouldn't be pleased with. And often parents don't even know what their children are being taught. And more and more it seems that parents are not being exposed to, to what's being taught in various subjects or the, the social environments their children are in. And so there's a clash that's going on in our society, and it's happening all, all over the place where different people have different values. And if the people in charge, whether it be the school, the government, have one set of values about how people should live, what their opportunities should be, who they're, what kind of relationships they should have, that might differ from, from uh, the, the parents' values. The question becomes, if a teacher is seeing that a child is pursuing a, an idea, a relationship, that the teacher knows is something that the parents would have a hard time with, the people who believe in parental rights would say the, par the, the teacher should inform the parents, possibly. It's, so because our society has become so divisive, so polarized, there's so many opportunities for these kinds of clashes. And what we're seeing more and more within the school setting, for example, is a, uh, you probably know the word, um, an, almost an activist role in, in bringing a set of values to children, regardless of what their family of origin might, might value. There was a time, and maybe we're going to come back to this later, maybe not, I might forget. <laughs> I don't think I have it written down. There was a time when the school was the extension of the family or of the religious affiliation of the family. So church-type schools, uh, Jewish parochial schools. I'm not familiar with the uh, other religious groups. But um, the school was, by and large, an extension of the values of the family. But now it's, it's, it's not like that at all. And, and it's become, as seen in the, in the Million March for Children and the counter-protests uh, to that, that many people in the, in, in the society, um, and teachers and, and administrators and, and others, are upholding values very different from the families of origin. And, and that's created this. So who's to decide? Who's to decide what kind of things are essential for these children to learn that might be different from 
what their families of origins value. Um, I can't remember if I already mentioned, because I'd already tried this once. I'm going through this a second time. Uh, you know, even our, our prime minister, prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, and the mayor of Ottawa, Mark Sutcliffe, on the day of the, when this happened, came up with very strong critical remarks against parents. And this troubles me for another set of reasons, because I believe that our, our, our municipal, provincial, and federal leaders should be more like statesmen. Can you say stay statesmen? I don't know how you would say statespeople. Um, but um, they should, as best they can, represent all the people, whether they vo people voted for them or didn't vote for them, and that they would do their best to preserve unity within our our society but more and more these social justice issues as they become to to know that they're taking stands for this thing and and they really do believe that in this case criticizing parents about their own children many of these were immigrant parents um that with all the excitement about bringing in so many immigrants to canada that these same immigrants, not the exact same, you know what I mean, are being criticized for their values. And, and, and now they're made to think, that, oh, these are religious values that be, should be kept, you know, behind closed doors, you know, in the closet. Other people have recently come out of the closet with their, their views. And, and we thought at the time that this was just, this was an expression of a greater openness in the society. We didn't think that many of these people would rally a movement to push other people in, into the closet as they came out of the closet. So what started as something that was done in the name of tolerance has relatively quickly become a movement of intolerance. And so let's look at the issue of, of parental rights. Um, as I've already said, um, I think we all believe that there's a limit to to parental rights when if if and when parents might be harming their children, the state has an interest in that. But however that is to work out, I think many of us watching or listening to a podcast like this believe that parents have a primary role in the education of their children. And so that's what I want to look at. I want to look at parental responsibility in education. Um, and I want to look at what the Bible has to, to say about this. There's a particular element in how we relate to the Bible that could be, I, I think, how we relate to the Bible today can be getting in the way in allowing the Bible to speak into a situation like this. It's, it's a similar problem in many ways. This is this podcast is Thinking Biblically, all of Scripture for all of life. And I'm doing this because I believe uh, even people that would say, I believe, they hold up their Bibles, I believe every word in this book. Um, it's ESV. Um, there's many good translations. But um, I believe every word that's in this book. And yet there's these barriers, I find. Other ways of looking at things that will get in the way of all, all of God's word speaking to all of life. And that's a that's a huge, huge subject which I, I'm trying to unpack little by little by doing 
thinking biblically. So what I want to do is zero, uh, is before I zero, <laughs> I'm going to zero in on something. So I want to look at some foundational passages that speak to parent, what I'm calling parental primacy in education, like that prim parental primacy in education. Uh, and then we're in the midst of that, we're going to look at a, a key factor that's preventing us from effectually living out, effectually living out these and other biblical passages. And I, and I want to zero in on uh, what I'm calling a biblically prescribed approach to teaching our children. And then we're going to wrap it up by, uh, by with, with some conclusions, some implications of all this, and and if God calls parents to be uh, the prime responsible people, I'm not saying that right. Um, that if if we are responsible for the education of our children, what should we do about it? More marches, or something else? My head looked a little funny when I did that. I didn't know I could do that. I shouldn't. I love to do this such a way that I'm not staring at myself. I don't know about you others that do podcasts. But anyway, um, so first of all, let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. There's so much more here than what we can cover. But um, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the family is the God-ordained building block of society. Marriage and family are instituted by God as the prime vehicle to oversee God's interests on earth. So let's let's read uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, familiar verses. Let's start at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and uh, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And so on. And so God gives the food, and... He sees that he, he oversees everything. He looks over everything that he's made and says it's very good. And so what we have here, we call it the creation mandate. This is where God assigns to human beings the responsibility to oversee his interests on planet Earth. God created the universe and, and he puts man and woman in charge of Earth. So God is the ultimate ruler but he assigns human beings, made in his image, which I take to mean as his representatives on earth. And so that's the, that's the creation mandate. In Genesis chapter 2, we have more of an unpacking of how God designed man and woman as his representatives on earth. And we have the whole story there of how God looks at the man who is a male man, uh, male man. Uh, Adam was a male. Uh, some people think that he was some sort of uh, androgynous male-female man, but from what I could tell, he was a male man. And he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. 
And so then he, he brings the animals to Adam and none of them are a suitable helper for him. And so then God puts Adam into a deep sleep and takes from his side, not necessarily his rib, takes from his side and designs and forms the woman, brings the woman to man. And so we see here that woman is the, is the specially designed associate for man in fulfilling the creation mandate. And um, where, where is it here? I wanted to read its verse two, verses 2, 24 and 25, where God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it's here we see that God himself designed the purposely designed the institution of marriage as the the environment in which children were to be raised. Now this is very important. It's important to understand that God purposely designed man and woman as a married institution in which to be the environment in which children are to be are to come into the world and to be raised the reason why this is so important in our day especially is because many bible believers read these words many of them don't take genesis 1 and 2 at face value now i'm not going to get into the whole creation versus evolution oh actually like six day creation no Six 24-hour day creation versus some sort of evolutionary framework. There's many, many believers uh, who love the Lord their God with all their heart and so on that believe that Genesis 1 and 2 does not reflect the reality of how planet Earth came about. In the name of science... And if you listen carefully, I'm not going to really get into some of the fine details, and hopefully you're going to see why. And I hope I'm representing this view properly. But in the name of scientific discovery, um, this is not really how God... Uh, you don't see here. This is not really how God brought things about. Um, and I, sh I should... I should, I'm going to read this in a second. I, I wrote some of this out, and I, I, I need to do this precisely. Um, but when I talk about theistic evolutionists, so these are people that believe that there's a God, and if they are, if if they believe the Bible, they're biblically based believers in God, who believe that how God created everything was through the evolutionary process. So God created the first uh, spark of life, whatever, you can call it whatever you want, just get what I'm trying to say. And then an evolutionary process is how we got to the complexity of the universe and life on earth and animals and human beings. That's how we got here. That it, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly the six day, it isn't being represented by the six days of Genesis 1. 
and I don't want to get into the details of that, but, but follow why I am sharing this with you. So I'm going to read this. So theistic evolutionists have this challenge. If this is you, you believe that reality is evolutionary, meaning that the world as we know it came about in a particular way that the Bible doesn't describe. Your viewpoint, therefore, insists that the Bible's take on origins is actually mythic in form. And I wonder, a lot of people actually, you may not express it this way, and you may not have worked out the, the literal six-day creation versus theistic evolution. You, you may not have worked it out so uh, in such a um, sophisticated way, but you've got some doubts about the literal nature of Scripture, and therefore, what does the Bible really say? And so it's, it's their stories that aren't necessarily taken. Maybe they are to be taken literal, but not so literal, not too sure, don't know, don't know. But you've got to follow, follow this. This is really, really important. So your viewpoint, therefore, insists that the Bible's take on origins is actually mythic in form. So there are stories that are teaching certain things, but they're not connected to reality. Okay? So I'll read it again. Your viewpoint, therefore, insists that the Bible's take on origins is actually mythic in form, something more akin to spiritual commentary laid over a physical reality. You know, people in the Bible's day, they didn't understand all these things about science, but they were told these stories. And so there's a reality that they weren't in touch with, and the Bible's not in touch with. What the Bible gives us are these interesting stories about God and, and Adam and Eve and some of these things. And there's truth there. But all in all, it's a commentary, spiritual commentary laid over a physical, actual reality that the Bible isn't reflecting. Scripture then becomes a commentary on reality rather than the definition of reality itself. And even as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of other current issues today where people are saying, you know, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, he didn't talk about this, that, or everything. They weren't aware of, of some of these things. So therefore, how do we take what he says if they didn't have a scientific worldview? They don't understand things the way that we do. So all of a sudden, yes, I believe the Bible, but it's, it's creating some of these like, like, like irritating question marks. Okay, so scripture then becomes a commentary on reality rather than the definition of reality itself. Now, I can allow myself to consider that the Bible may not be a technical description of the specifics of the physical world, at least not intentionally so. So while we might be able to derive truths that are in line with science from the Bible, I think we could agree the Bible is not a science, it's not a science book. It's not a technical manual. It doesn't speak about life in technical terms, okay? So I might allow myself to consider the Bible may not be a technical description of the specifics of the physical world, at least not intentionally so, but what the Bible communicates, okay? So I might allow myself to accept the Bible's not a technical book. It's not a science book, but what the Bible communicates is the world as it really is providing, the Bible provides the way we are to relate to the world. With regard to the issue of how we are to live in the world, scientific observations and conclusions on their own will necessarily lead us astray in our understanding of the realities of life. Science is a very 
narrow investigation of how the world is put together, but it is not a vehicle of life truth. It doesn't give us enough of, there's nothing in science that gives us enough to understand the workings of life in its, in its fullness, while the Bible does exactly that. Only the scriptures, rightfully understood, of course, provide us with an understanding of the reality of the world in which we all live. Only the scriptures, rightfully understood, provide us with an understanding of the reality of the world in which we all live. So there's much more that I can say about that. But I think we suffer from all sorts of disconnects. And some of it has to do with how science has been handled. Like there's a place for science. But I, science has been so imposed on the minds of human beings for a long, long time. And we can go back to when it was used to, to undermine Scripture, which was a huge, huge mistake. Instead of understanding science as the tool that it can be used for, it's been used to understand all of life. And it's a very, very bad tool. That's like using a hammer. You know, you have one tool in your toolbox, science, and then you bang everything with it. While the Bible, on the other hand, the Bible's not going to necessarily tell us uh, the best uh, the best potion or lotion for, for, uh, for, for wrinkles. I, I don't have it. I don't have wrinkles. I'm 66. I don't have wrinkles. And I thank God for that. And if I had wrinkles, I'd thank God for that too, I hope. I wonder if I should take that part out. I think I'll, I'll just leave it in. Write me if it really bothers you. But you're probably taking a potion or lotion and it helps you with your wrinkles. The, Bi the Bible it isn't going to give you that kind of recipe. There's a whole lots of recipes that it doesn't give. You know, it talks about bread, but it doesn't tell you how to make the bread. And uh, while the Bible gives us information for all of life, and it's sufficient in, in enabling us to live effective, godly lives, there are disciplines in life that we need and are, can be a blessing if they're used properly. And so science has done a real number that I believe has undermined our ability to connect with Genesis 1 and 2. And it becomes difficult to refer to it when actually it is so foundational, and especially with an issue like this. If you hold to a scientific worldview, it seems to me, even though you might so I believe in the God of the Bible, I believe in obeying what God says in his word. And yet, you likely believe that the human family was a result of an evolutionary process over time. And eventually, God-influenced morality emerges on the human scene, whether it bursts in like God speaking to Adam and God speaking to Noah and God speaking to Moses, or people kind of got it figured out over time through trial and error, and then this became associated with a version of God, and then these stories of the Bible emerged, and some of it makes it sound like God personally did this, when really this is how people talked about it, and now we're not really taking the story seriously, and God did not actually purposely design the human family. 
which is what the Bible teaches. Now, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden, and neither were you. But these are the stories that have been authorized by God to teach us about life. And so if your version of reality, whether you're a believer or not a believer, if your version of reality is in conflict to what these stories teach, then you are misguided and you are going to get you and your family and those you influence in trouble. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And by following what the Bible teaches, that's the way we're going to know the goodness of God in our lives and how it can work through our lives. God ordained the family. God ordained parents. God ordained the children should be born into these secure, permanent, cleave to his wife and they become one flesh, permanent relationships. And that's the place where children should be raised. What do you think about that? Let me know. Is there a better way to say it? Do you not agree at all? And, and please back up. If you're saying you're a Bible believer, back up what you're saying with Scripture. And, and, and let's go deep. And if you bring up some good, real good questions, um, I'd be very happy to, to share it on a podcast. And, and um, depending on, maybe I'll even interview you. Try it. Reach out to me. Let's see what happens. Okay, moving on. On one hand, we don't need much else when we understand the foundation of the family as a, the building block of society. And it would the natural implication is that these children giving to their parents are their responsibility to raise. But it's explicitly stated in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 verse 8, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 6.20, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the roles of males and females in the Bible. It isn't just listen to your dad, do whatever your dad said. Did I read Proverbs 6.20 yet or get distracted? My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 23.22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Ooh, when she's old. That means the kids might be old too. Ephesians 6 verse 1, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. There is no other source of influence for children in the Bible. There isn't. There's no, there's no basis for the society being the the caregivers of the children. No, it doesn't take a village. American politician, I don't have his name, he wrote a book called It Takes a Family. It, it was his response, I believe it was Hillary Clinton that came up with that, It Takes a Village, which makes sense given her views of, of societal values and how society should be run. And uh, this politician comes from a traditional Catholic background and he said, no, it takes a family. It takes a family to raise a child. And um, rightly, rightly understood, functioning well, it should be the extended family. The family is the place where children are to be raised. And raised doesn't mean up to three or up to five. It's, it's to be ongoing. But that has really changed. 
Now, there might be a place to contract out. And we're going to look at that a little bit. We can contract out. Under our supervision, we contract out the training of our children. But we need to remember, like in any kind of contracting out, um, I, I, I used to run a, a, a little tiny computer firm. It was just me most of the time. Uh, I never had any other employees. When I was, especially when I was involved in web work, at, at some point I had a guy. I had a guy. I had a guy that I would contract many hours of, of work to. But I was the one who interfaced with the client. If my, he was a friend of mine, if, if the person I contract, contracted out to uh, was messing up, I was responsible. So I had to make sure that he was fulfilling the task that was given to me by my client. We, the parents, are the ones that are responsible. I need to make sure that the people who I've contracted out to fulfill that which I have been given. I've been given the responsibility. I'm inviting other people in, but I am answerable. Mom and dad, and, and I believe dad ultimately is responsible before God for the raising and training of our children. We're going to answer for that. I do believe that. And I, I think it's something we need to take very, very seriously. But now enter the nanny state. This idea that the state knows better. And one interesting thing is I've looked at this uh, before, uh, 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 as I've studied this, is in the New Testament, where we, we're seeing children obey your parents. And of course, the in the New Testament, the principles of Old Testament life, Hebrew scripture life is being upheld in the biblical worldview, we could call it. But, but there they were, these early Jewish believers, Jewish early followers of Yeshua the Messiah were going into the Roman Empire and, and spreading the word of the God of Israel to the nations. And the Roman Empire, they believed that the gods, the false gods, the gods had endowed them with the, and given them the responsibility to care for the state. And the Romans took great pride in the stability of 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 the Roman Empire of that day. They believed they were the caretakers of the society, not the individuals, not the family. And here, a whole other viewpoint is being called to where individuals are called to responsibility and families are called to be responsible for God for their children. And that, that would be why the idea that the, the school then, a public school, is the is the extension of the family, that can work. And there's so many reasons, things that have, have contributed to how we got here. One of it is our, we have these big sprawling cities and big, um, um, juris, very large jurisdictions and, and covering these large areas. So we're really far removed from the church school, from the one-room schoolhouse, from the village school, where everybody knew everyone, everyone knew who the teachers were, just everyone knew. And now everything is so removed from us and we're distanced from how even our own children are being are being influenced. And this can happen even in their bedrooms with the internet and all the rest. Um, uh, so so um, care of our children have, has been taken from us and it's become very difficult for parents uh, to take that responsibility. And now we get to the point where the values, now this was already a problem before we were so polarized with our values. Now with our values so polarized, we're actually more and more as, as um, 
uh, picked, illustrated by the the march and the counter protests were almost at each other's throats over our kids. This is a very, very sad, tragic situation. So now we have what I call the threat of the nanny state. So the state, our government authorities, the ruling authorities believe they are best equipped to make important decisions for our children. They are the ones, they're the experts who know better than the parents on what these children actually need. And they'll even stand, case of the counterpart, they'll stand in between the parents and their children. They think they have the best interests of the children in mind. Um, and if it differs from the parents, I, I'm not going to try to say what they might say. It might be a little bit too crude. So how, how do we deal? So it's, it's, it's one thing to have a difference, with, a difference of opinion with the school. But now that the school is so um, bolstered by the state, by the government, that's a lot of power involved. And more and more, the children are being torn from their families, not literally removed from their homes, but culturally and spiritually valueized <laughs> in terms of values are being ripped away from their parents. Um, I was going to look this up. I, I, I didn't do so, but the term indoctrination. So we don't want our children indoctrinated. And indoctrination just has to do with teaching them. It shouldn't have to be a bad word, but the problem is more and more parents are concerned that their children are being taught things that are wrong. Not just what the parents prefer, wrong. The parents believe this, school believes that. There's a huge, huge difference. So what's the solution? Well, let's go to a, a verse that addresses parental responsibility in education. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. Moses, God says through Moses, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So this verse provides us with both the what and the how. I'm going to read it again in, in, in a wider context. That was verse 7. I'm reading Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Note where, where what this is connected to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and that shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice that the what to be taught are the, the ways of God. I love talking about the Torah. Yes, the Torah is the five books of Moses, but Torah means direction. It doesn't really mean law in the way we understand it today. Torah means direction or teaching. It's God, it's God pointing in the way of life, saying this is the way to walk. To ignore it is to invite death. And there's so much in Scripture. There's so much Scripture that we've been cut off from because of bad understandings of how to approach the Scripture. I refer to how science, which is a good thing in and of itself has been used to get in the way of God's word 
And there's all sorts of various theologies and ideologies that have cut God's people off from Scripture when, when actually we should be, our lives should be saturated with it. We should be learning the ways of God and communicating the ways of God to children. Now this, you shall teach them diligently, in the ESV, that's one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five words, is all from a, a, a word, shanan. It's a, it's a variation of the word shanan. And it means, it comes from the meaning to pierce something. And so a better term, instead of diligently teach, it should be instill them in your children. Instill them in your children. That is the mandate that parents have been given uh, with regard to their children. Instill the ways, the truths, the word of God in your children. The problem with using diligently is the emphasis is on the doing of it. It's like, like, like do it, like do it a lot, do it hard, be diligent. But when we say instill, there's an expectation that the Word of God is going to go in. So teach it in such a way that it actually goes in. It's not good enough just to tell and 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 tell. We need to find a way to tell, to demonstrate, to model God's Word so that it goes in. And this idea of modeling God's Word fits in with this idea that you do this when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It's this ongoing thing that's part of regular life. Sadly, one of the problems I believe with modern education is how it's it's so cerebral. It's it and now it's it's become far more touchy feely and, it, and it's it's some, you know social justice issues, some of these things, but still it's 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 still detached from a holistic reality of life. When you dive into scripture in its fullness, that's an integrative, holistic kind of experience. And we should not only be sharing Bible facts with our kids, we should be um, reflecting the fullness of scripture. So as far as our responsibility in this is concerned, this is really serious. We have been appointed, charged by, commanded by, told by God that it's our responsibility as parents to teach our children. In, and in such a way, according to Deuteronomy 6, to instill the ways of God. And that includes the... And we know from Scripture that we should be working with our hands, we work with our hands unto the glory of God, that people who don't work shouldn't eat, we should, you know, we should care for the poor and the sick and the needy, but we should be encouraging people to contribute to society, and that gets into the whole biblical ethic of work and all the things that the Bible actually teaches, and all these things should be, um, it's the responsibility of parents to instill all this to their children, however you much might do it. That's your responsibility. The how is your responsibility. The Bible can help you with the how. It certainly helps you with the what. But it's your responsibility to do it. And this is a big issue that I see with, the, with, with public schools. The concept of the public school as an, ex, 
an extension of the family and that and that we we bring our resources together to make sure that all the children of our towns villages and city are well educated as a concept that's a great concept and so this idea of contracting out to a public school and and that way the poor and the and the rich to can be together and all all sorts of ideas and the, you know with the ideology of public school so as a, as a as a base concept fine sending our kids to be together under good supervision with qualified teachers and all the rest but if they are being fed would you believe would you believe if you actually looked what your children are, are being metaphorically fed in their minds and their hearts if you believe it's poison that's one thing to find out they're getting a little bit of poison you go in and you talk to the principal or talk to the teacher during parent teachers evening or whatever and, and you seek to correct this thing and hopefully it gets corrected but if the diet your children are receiving is bad for them who is responsible to take care of that well i'm being responsible by going on a march well that could be helpful but the next day after the march are your children still being fed are, are they now being fed nutritious food or stuff that's bad for them and if they're being fed stuff that's bad for them what are you going to do about it and then we start to get defensive because I don't know how I would do that. I, I got to work. My wife has to work. And, you know, my husband has to work. We all have to work. And everybody has to work and, and all the rest. I understand the challenges. My wife and I raised 10 children. 36 years of homeschooling. Was it easy? Well, I'm the dad. I didn't think it was easy. Ask my wife. She did most of the hands-on teaching. But we also believe in holistic education. So, so much of our teaching happened at the dinner table and, and other times when we, we, I was often working at home and we'd have many meals together. I was around a lot. There was a lot of interaction. I'm not saying all my interaction with my kids was wonderful and perfect, but we even, we'd endeavor to do what Deuteronomy 6 says. That's what we have been given to do. And if you have to contract out, fine. But is your contracting out in keeping with the responsibility you've been given? That's a question I believe every parent, whether you believe in God or not. Because the Bible teaches us what a parental responsibility is. It's not just for religious folks. It's not just for Bible believers. This is how God designed human life. Parents are responsible to teach and train their children. Not just when they're itty-bitty. And again, as they get older, and we've, we've done it, we've, we've had our kids in co-ops, um, we've done some teaching sharing, my wife taught French, uh, another parent uh, to a bunch of kids, another parent taught art and science to a bunch of our kids and other kids. There's all sorts of creative things we could do. And, I, and one of the things I've been finding is a lot of people don't even, they don't think they have the permission to seek God for creative solutions and how best to train their children. It's one of the thing, problems we've seen with homeschooling. One of the things with homeschooling is people think about it and they think they think of this, the the formalized schoolroom and they think they have to um, imitate the schoolroom or they they or even another problem they see other homeschoolers and they and they see successful ones not all are are, are very good at what they do and there's reasons for that um, but some have really excelled kids have and many homeschoolers have, are 
are very well advanced. There's good reasons for that. Partly the individualized attention alone, um, but also all kids are different. But so we look and we compare with others and that discourages us. And so we think we have to just do what everybody or what the majority does and off to the public school they go or the not so good religious school because just because it's a private school doesn't mean it's any good, uh, both morally, spiritually and all the rest. Who's responsible for this? It's you, mom and dad. It's you, mom and dad. And But you may not think you have the resources. This, I'm not going to pitch some resources to you except one. The resources of heaven. If you are a follower of Yeshua, the Messiah, we're told all the resources of heaven are at your disposal. And if only you could allow yourself to be creative. We started with creation. We serve the creator God. And one of the reasons why we don't get creative and find creative solutions is we're too scared to listen to what God is saying to us and do and to do different things, unusual things that he might call us to do. Now, I'm not encouraging people to act completely independent. Oh, I got a great idea. And just do whatever willy-nilly. Find people you could talk to. Find people who have been successful in alternate modes of education, methods of education. Try to get connected with support groups and all the rest. Find a good private school. Find a good co-op. Find something. Maybe where you live, you have you know of a gem of a public school. That might be your best course of action for your children. But remember, you are the one that has to answer to God for how you train and teach your children. May God help you. If you have any questions about some of this in particular we have in i i currently teach at a, at a of a private christian at a, at a private christian classical school i'm the bible teacher at saint timothy's classical academy here in ottawa you want to know more about that you can contact me or you can contact the school directly you want to talk to me and or my wife about homeschooling contact us about that we could maybe try to connect you with people uh, we know or people we know people we know in where you are do our best to help you. We can certainly pray for you. Um, and we believe that God answers those kinds of prayers for sure because He has given you that responsibility. But you don't have to leave. You mustn't leave your children where they are being harmed, whether it's a physical harm or an intellectual or spiritual harm. That, that drive that the state has to protect your children and make sure that they, they are trained up properly, they've stolen that from you and it's time to take it back. If you have any comments, questions, you can leave them in the comments section. If you want to contact me directly, write me, email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. That's comments at thinkingbiblically.org. If this was helpful to you, Click like or whatever is available there on your podcast or on YouTube and share it with others that you think might be helped. So and we'll leave it at that. Until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.